the purpose of teacher meetings? I really want to talk about this because every day your teachers are meeting, and what are they supposed to be doing? Do they have? Is there a clear desired outcome? So, so I I remember um, as an exceptional children's teacher, any time that I met in specific to a child, right? So if it was a student IP meeting um, or a student support team meeting. All, all I can remember is positive collaboration and celebrations and, and, and collegiality. I mean, everybody coming together to, to, to ensure that a, that, a, you know, that a child was going to be successful. And I also remember being in teacher meetings where there would be four or five teachers around, and I'm not really sure we knew what we were supposed to be doing, but there wasn't a lot of collaboration. It was more collaboration, right? It was either complaining or venting or watch-looking or, you know, um, you know, I, we didn't really have smartphones then, but I'm sure there would have been a lot of that, you know, type of off-task off behavior. So, how come it was different? Right? So I try to reflect, why was it different? Could it be the fact that we were so focused, so student-centered, so data-driven on a particular child that it really brought us all together, that we utilized the data to, to make decisions and, and, and to not only help, help the child but also help, help ourselves be better educators? That was kind of the conclusion I started to come to. So as a principal, again, this is something that I really struggled as, as a leader. As a, as a leader of a school, what were the purpose of our meetings, right? We, I, I created a schedule so we had consistent vertical opportunities and horizontal planning meetings. You know, we did grade levels. We did content area. But it wasn't necessarily seeing any results because I really didn't have a plan. I didn't realize that teachers necessarily didn't know how to collaborate or what they were supposed to be talking about or what was their time together for. I really, really struggled at that. You know, what, what, what do teachers talk about at their meetings? What kinds of meetings do we have? What, who leads these meetings? How often do they meet? who holds them accountable for what comes out of the meeting. Like I do remember kind of doing all those accountability pieces and having them send me their notes and, and I would sit down on the meetings and that's when I really realized it, but they, they just don't, they don't, they don't talk about it. This just isn't productive for anybody. So remember when we talked about our six types of culture, right? And we aim for a collaborative culture. We're always aiming for that collaborative culture. And some of the signs are, Teachers are given time to discuss student achievement, spend time critically analyzing one another's practice. That's interesting. Teachers are given time to discuss student achievement, okay, hit that, and spend this time critically analyzing one another's practice. That was definitely not happening at any meeting I've ever gone to. Teachers seek out opportunities to observe and discuss what other teachers are teaching. This is something that we did. We had a critical friends group that was really, really effective at two of the schools uh, that I was at, and we'll probably talk more about that another time. Teachers are expected to participate in decisions concerning students. I love that. Teachers are expected to participate. All right? When I remember as a, as a first-year teacher, I was basically at 
a lot of meetings just because I was the EC teacher, right, or because they needed an LEA or whatever it was. No expectations put on me. When I tried to participate, I was usually told to be quiet. <laughs> right? So I love this, this collaborative environment. Teachers are expected. Teachers are very interested in their colleagues' opinions concerning instruction. School leaders challenge ineffective teaching and encourage teachers to do the same. Any teacher can talk about another teacher about their teaching practices. Okay, so like you get the idea, right? So, so there was, you know, remember we had all those, um, you know, descriptors of what collegiate, what collaborative environment looks like. So, as school leaders, we need to create a belief of student achievement. However, this is defined at your school. That is the responsibility of everyone. Right? We need to create a belief that student achievement is the responsibility of everyone in the school. So if that's the case, what, what types of data do we maybe bring to these meetings, right? That's off the cuff, off, you know, off the cuff. Could maybe it's student attendance, student tardiness. How many kids signed up for extracurricular activities? In an elementary school, the goal might be that every teacher knows every child and every teacher knows every family. I mean, there's so many other pieces that we can bring when, when we start to understand that student achievement is responsibility of everyone. But without collaboration and collegiality, really data use is impossible. But to make it effective, healthy conflict is essential. And we talked about healthy conflict when we discussed the five dysfunctions of a team, right? There can't be any fear of conflict if you want to be successful, if you want to get to that next level, if you want to ensure that your team and your organization achieves. There's going to be healthy disagreement whether what the data is telling us. Right? And what happens in the meeting stays at the meeting. What what happens in doesn't leak out and impact the school climate. The Monday morning quarterbacks. That's why as a school leader, another big piece of building these teams is looking at the personality styles. And if you came to our our lead to lead conference, we hosted a we did a disc profile personality style. Afterwards, you've got the four. Everybody's got these four personality types, dominant, inspiring, supportive, and cautious. Right? So, so as a team, you want folks who look at, who think like-minded, but look at things differently. Right? So that's a, that's a big piece of you know, building your grade-level teams right? or your, your content teams or your teams in general is always thinking about how they look at things, right? making sure you, you have different approaches to looking at the data. Data allows for solution-oriented approaches, right? So it's not quick. It's not a quick fix or jumping to conclusions. Right? We're going to talk about some examples of some questions uh, that that you know might be asked in regards to data if we're specifically looking at some academic data, right? So this is just maybe the basis of your team. If you're if you're definitely looking at just 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 a few pieces that your team can ask some common questions about. What did the majority of our students do well on? Do we have an explanation for that? What strategies did the students use? 
if you're looking at the assessment, the actual assessment, how was the question worded? Do our students understand the words in the questions or the actual directions? In these meetings, you need to be pushing each other instead of swapping stories, right? I mean, you almost need to think of, of a coach's mentality, right? If you can teach your teachers how to coach, because right, great leaders are great coaches, we ask those great coaching questions. Why did you choose to use that strategy to teach that standard? Right? Why did you choose that strategy to teach that level of math? How would you change your lesson for next time? Why do you think it worked? Right? Constantly coaching and getting those questions together. So another mindset that the school leaders battle with is that if a student performed well in the assessment, the teachers thinks that they were effective. If the student did not perform well on the assessment, the, you know, the teacher may believe that the student just didn't put in the effort. Right? And it goes back to the responsibility of everyone. Student achievement is responsibility of everyone. So those are just a couple of examples of, of some very general questions that you may find in, in a team meeting, right? in a team meeting. However, Richard DeFore, um, who's an incredible uh, expert in differentiation, um, in this in last month's Education Leadership, wrote this article about the implementation of PLCs, professional learning communities. So I looked at my questions, and I was reading this article, and I compared these two, and I was just blown away uh, when he when he said that uh, to to have a truly uh, common approach to looking at data in teams, his four questions were very similar to the ones I shared, but these are the four that we're going to focus on during this teaching. Which students were unable to demonstrate proficiency on the assessment? Number two, which students are highly proficient and would benefit from extended or accelerated learning? Number three, did one or more colleagues have excellent results in an area where my students struggled? What can I learn from them to improve my own practice? And number four, is there an area in which none of us achieved the results we expected? What do we need to learn as a team to reach the skill or concept more effectively? So I'm going to share these four questions. I'll send them back out in the email. So when I saw these four questions, I just started to really write notes out and think about, okay, if I was a school leader, what systems do I need to have in place? So if my teachers are asking these four questions during their team leadership meeting, what do I have to have in place to make sure that I can turn words into action, right? There's an actual purpose. There's intentionality. So I'm going to approach these one at a time. And feel free uh, you know, to dive in if you've got an idea or you know, keep your idea to the side when I open up the queue. But star six always gets you in. So which students were unable to demonstrate proficiency on the assessment? So there's a few things I thought of. You know, number one is that having a clear system for prevention and intervention is critical to any school's success. So having a clear path for these students who did not achieve mastery. So 
you might have like a scheduled small group time. We used to have double dose at my school, right? It was a second opportunity for language arts, a second opportunity for math during that day for those kids who did not master the formative assessment from that day. Right? Some schools have school based tutors, right? So if you use the NWA map, you know exactly what the child can do. You can give uh, you know the tutor the lesson plan, you could send lesson plans home, all right, you can have a specific lesson to attack that standard. Some schools use use you know uh, virtual supplemental materials like Khan Academy. I know my my daughter's school uses that uh, Khan's Academy. So so I want to go back to that, how important that is, right? Because if I'm having a meeting and I'm realizing, oh, well, these 10 kids didn't pass the test, but I don't have time in my schedule to teach them, or I don't know what I do, or what curriculum will I use, or what materials will I use, I mean, you've got to eliminate those generalizations, right? Eliminate the excuses, eliminate the generalizations. If the school doesn't have these systems in place, the team will more likely either reteach the lesson to all the students in a large group, right, which is boring 90% of your kids probably, or worse, just move forward simply because they're unsure of what to do next. All right, so that was, that was just one piece of being able to answer those questions. And then I even thought about, well, gosh, it even goes to a deeper level. This would mean that the entire grade level or the entire content area specifically talked about or created a common assessment or a common assessment tool or they were all on the same pacing. I mean, you, you think about all of, if you go a backwards design and create a task analysis of everything you have to have in place for a school, for a teacher to not only ask this question, analyze it, answer it, but then have action. You've got to have all these pieces in place. And a big piece that our school was so adamant about um, was not being on your butt during any assessment. Right? Our teachers used to walk around with clipboards, all right, whatever it was, they were constantly taking notes watching the student do their work. And if there's not a common expectation of students showing their work, you'll never know where the common mistakes are. You'll never have a, a great understanding of where you need to specifically re remediate the child. Okay, so that's, that's another expectation that I put in my notes. It's like, gosh, we had that, and that really made a big difference. That was the expectation. There was no sitting down. I almost wanted to take all the chairs out of our school. All right, here we go. Question number two. Now, what students are highly proficient and would benefit from extended or accelerated learning? This is this is very similar to to question number one in my response. You know, um, students who accelerate in the school I led just you know typically end up doing more practice work, right? Or we created a higher level class, like we started having high school classes in the middle school. Um, and, and you know the common response you always heard from the curriculum director is, oh, they just eat it up. They love it. They just do more work. But you know what? We weren't really accelerating. We were, they were just getting more practice. They were just getting better at it. So what do you do with the students? Again, first and foremost, you must be intentional. Intentional with your high-level achievers as you are with your low-level achievers. Again, the school could schedule a daily time, uh, you know, 40 minute intervention extension blocks for language arts and 30 minutes for mathematics every day. 
right? Enrichment would probably be more likely an inquiry-based, collaborative projects, you know, problem-solving, independent work, you know, just, just anchor activities. I mean, it, you know, it could be at a whole different level. And, and, and for questions one and two, this takes a team for planning and support that range from your exceptional children's teachers to your curriculum coaches to tutors and every, everybody that you've got in place. Right? It's a collaborative team approach to being successful. Right, so any comments or feedback on, 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 on one or two, I will, I will, I'm actually going to unmute. I don't have a lot of folks on, but so you have it. If, if you want to uh, mute yourself after I unmute you, go right ahead. But, um, but you, you, know, you know, anybody wants to chime in on those first two questions or, you know, maybe something you did at your school that you led uh, that made a difference with those, with those two, those high-level learners or those you know, students who did not quite master, master the assignment. All right, I'm going to move on to question number three then. Question number three was, did one or more colleagues have excellent results in an area where my results struggled, and what can I learn from them to improve my own practice? So this was an interesting one for me, and it just made me think about no trust, no unity, no, pro no progress, right? One aspect of building a collaborative environment is having trust and having conversations with peers regarding their practice, right? And, and this is where this critical friends group that, that I implemented in multiple schools was, was, was you know, fantastic about, you know, building all, authenticity with, uh, you know, collaborative efforts um, in our classroom. But if you go through that, those, those, two, those two high levels of, of our school uh, culture rubric, I mean, there's there's constantly here talking that all teachers assume some new responsibility for helping new teachers adjust. All teachers can talk about any other teacher about their teaching practice. School leaders challenging effective teachers and encouraging teachers to do the same. I mean, it, it, you the only way that you can get better is if you have to understand that I'm not great at everything, and you have to be willing to have that conversation. Now, what does that look, look like intentionally? One great school that I think about, Community School of Davidson, I know I talk about them a lot, uh, but CSD, uh, I, I have sat in collaborative meetings there that have had uh, like you know, 14, 14 folks in them, you know, vertically and horizontally, um, specifically talking about each individual child, having, having you know, common assessment, Having common, uh, you know, unit plans because they they loop with their with their students from from grades K to seven, and they're constantly building the curriculum over and over. And these teachers have been there for time, and and the whole school is based upon relationships. And they know that it's never about me; it's always about we. And you build that culture over time through trust. And if you if you make a commitment, you keep the commitment. You show vulnerability as yourself as a leader, right? You ask your best teachers for feedback, right? You ask, you make decisions based upon your best teachers. You ask your best teachers for feedback on, on your performance as a leader, how you lead meetings, how can you improve faculty meetings, how can you improve teacher feedback sessions, I mean, whatever it is, you create that environment. You create that environment. Let's go to question number four. 
they're an area which none of us achieve the results we expected, what do we need to learn as a team to reach the skill or concept more effectively? So the one issue when number four occurs could be that just a common misconception um, of the uh, desired outcome by the whole instructional team, right? Not necessarily the student base, right? So creating time for teachers to clarify the essential outcomes for each instructional unit, developing common formative assessments, and utilizing the assessments to improve their own individual and collective instructional procedures is critical, or practices is, is, is critical. So, so again, it goes back to being intentional, Having a plan, right? You cannot continually adjust your curriculum, or I won't say adjust, change your curriculum on an annual basis. If every two years you are buying a whole new set of curriculum to, you know, uh, support your, um, uh, you know, focus on the Common Core and the Essential Standards, it's going to be difficult for your teachers to create commonality, right? The most effective schools, the schools that were in my dissertation study, had the same curriculum. Uh, like the same curriculum backbone spine for for seven plus years, and they just made minor tweaks and adjustments, and they supplemented the uh, curriculum, and and they stayed true to who they were. They didn't fall for the shiny lure, you know. They weren't the largemouth bass looking for that dangly worm. Right? So it's important that that you say, here's who we are. Here's what our students going to learn. Here's how we know that they've learned it. And here's what we're going to do when they don't. Right? So how can this occur? And again, I'm going to go back to Community School of Davidson because, you know, from what I saw, and I know this happens in other schools, but they have these unit boxes, right? So these, these unit boxes that, that continuously be developed every year because remember they're looping, right? So if I'm in kindergarten, if I'm a K1, um, you know, when I'm in kindergarten, I got my kids, and then I, I go to first grade, and I take the first grade unit boxes and I see what's there, and I add my my you know thoughts and my um, you know and my team's efforts, and then and then while I'm there, the first grade teachers back in kindergarten, and and you know they've you know learned a lot over the year, and they're like adding you know to the curriculum, so you're creating commonality. Right, so one thing that we realized, if you're a if you're a school that has heavy turnover, you need to to have a plan for common curriculum over time, you know, common lesson planning over time, uh, you know, because teachers leave, right? And most of the times when they leave, great ideas and great lesson plans go with them. So it's important to you know establish some sort of ongoing sustainable curriculum development plan. And this planning can be done at annual retreats or your monthly half a days or off-site meetings. I know Magellan Charter School here in Raleigh every Friday, um, you know, the teachers get to leave for a half a day and the parents oversee the classrooms and the teachers go and they do their their dad and their assessments and their planning for everything next week. I mean, they, this is why the school has been 100% proficient and 100% you know, high growth year in, year after year because they constantly have a focus on getting better uh, not only with, with, with how they teach, but what they teach, right? And really, really focused on their students. So the author, uh, Richard Kafour, you know, mentions a critical caveat to, to this work, to doing this effectively, right? To being able to implement 
a professional learning community focused on these four, you know, questions. And and you know, again, you don't want to just say every agenda is these four questions. But if you have if you have a team that's you know, struggling, this is where you can start, right? You can start and grow from here. So we, so he said, and I just love you know this point because it's so important. He said, when schools utilize PLCs effectively, they are certain to improve student learning. He warns, however, you can develop stronger curriculum, common assessment tools, stronger school schedules that really focus on systems for prevention and intervention for students. But what schools fail to do is utilize this evidence of student learning to improve the overall teacher's ability to instruct and lead classrooms. And that, and that really opened my eyes, right? What of our data do we use to get better as a teacher, right? We definitely use you know data to change our lesson plans, right? And that's you know, getting better as a teacher. But when I think about the greatest teachers, they are this, these incredible human beings about building relationships and rapport, and identifying with every child and holding everybody accountable and holding themselves accountable. Right? They're there, they're nurturing, they're developing, they're lifelong learners. How do we use data? to get to that point, right? These teachers are more likely to attribute the student's difficulty to their own lacking of skills, right? They're taking ownership. We've talked about that, the ownership piece. It reminds me of the law of the mirror, right? We've talked about that. How do we lead ourselves? How do we look at ourselves in the mirror? Are we willing to accept that constructive criticism? Are, are we willing to, um, you know, spend that spend that Saturday afternoon diving through research literature? Are we, you know, willing to 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 really not just analyze our data in a sense of who got what wrong, but looking at every question, spending time with the student, looking at their work, saying, so "Why did you answer it this way? Tell me what strategy you used here. How can I teach you better?" So rather than listing what students need to do to correct their problems, educators should sit at the table with a mindset of what can we collectively do to get better? Right? What do we need, we need to do to get better? So here's your call to action for today, and I'm going to finish up my teaching. Here's your call to action is to ask yourself these three questions. Number one, why are we gathering the data? Two, with whom will we be sharing the data with? And three, what actions are we taking as a result of our analysis of the data? And once you have those three reflections, you're going to finalize your thoughts with this. Does our collection of data lead to higher levels of both student, lead, student learning and teacher instruction? If you cannot answer those questions with an emphatic yes, you're not doing data right. You're not doing your meetings right. So that is your call to action. Why are we gathering data? With whom will we be sharing the data with? And what actions are we taking as a result of our analysis of the data? And we're ensuring that we can answer that we're not only improving student learning, but our teacher practices with that data. That is my teaching for today, November 30th. Would love to open up the queue if anybody has any thoughts or questions. Was anything you know resonate with you? Have you read Richard DeFore's work? Um, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I'm pretty sure I am. 
Um, but Education Leadership Magazine from November, I think it was November, uh, this past month. It's a great, great um, you know, session on data. Um, I might be able to actually download the article and shoot it out to you all. So um, would love to hear any feedback, any thoughts of what you all did uh, to uh, create your PLCs and ensure that they were sustainable. Well, I think, Tom, the point that you made about taking action on the data is so very important. And when you break down the, the data to, an in, to individual students, too, you want to look at trends for classes as well as grade levels. But the real action to me always came with what did that student do on this assessment that uh, we can learn from and help that individual student. So uh, data collection for trends in large groups is a good indicator of things as well. But when it comes down to real action, I always wanted to know what were those students doing. And that was a big, uh, a big uh, area for discussion that led to action because we had to help that child. Right. So making that point of, yeah, our data analysis of trends and so forth for groups of students is showing us this. Now what does it mean for each individual child who has uh, participated in the assessments? Yeah, but so when you had those conversations, uh, were they in grade level meetings or, or or whole group meetings? And was it a you know was it focused on kind of what I talked about that you need to be out of your seat, watching the children actually do the work to be able to bring in that you know informal information? Well, um, we took we took that approach. Uh, one one of the things that I I would always have. Um, monthly meetings with, not monthly meeting, but quarterly in-depth meetings with each faculty member to discuss individual students and their and how they were doing and what data was showing us. Hmm. And that really uh, kept the focus on the students and gave the teacher an opportunity to have my undivided attention that we could dis discuss things and then I could help them by taking action if it meant to call a parent or even to talk to a student or just to see what was going on that might be interfering with some students' learning. That was one thing. And then in uh, the daily schedule or the weekly schedule for the school, all grade levels had opportunities to meet and plan together at least once a week, and sometimes uh, most had more than that. So that was a time too when they would discuss individual students and what the data was showing and then they could interact and get ideas from each other about how uh, they might help or give input to the teacher who was maybe presenting some children that they were frustrated that just weren't getting it what could they do yeah. so they used that time for collaboration 
I love the idea of, of you sitting down with your teachers individually because it also creates a relationship and a rapport between you and your teacher. You know, you let them know I'm here for you. This is my, I'm being, you know, I'm present here for you and what can I help to help you and what can I help to help the student. And I'm sure knowing how, you know, successful, um, you know, Connington was that a good deal of your, what you took in from those meetings had to drive a lot of your professional development that you planned for your staff. Would it be correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just talking about general teachers' meetings, uh, being able to share data trends and talk about the school with everyone was an important time to do that. Uh, but really valuing teachers' time by having teachers' meetings with a real purpose and having that agenda and having uh, the end in mind objectives for each item on the agenda, having a time limit, having teachers run the meeting for you as far as introducing items of agenda, having a timekeeper, keeping the uh, yeah. meeting not only as a, as a business an opportunity, but an opportunity to socialize, to be together with refreshments celebration of birthdays, you know, people really need that social interaction and that relaxation, and there's nothing more dull than a dull meeting. So you've got to <laughs> liven it up a little bit, have a, a real crisp agenda that you should have out before you have the meeting, have an opportunity for teachers to get on the agenda and put things on the agenda, too, so they have that input. So it becomes much more, uh, there's much more ownership if teachers are putting items on agendas as well as the staff and keeping, I always had uh, something on my agenda that would be, we did uh, Stephen Covey for character development and discipline. Mm -hmm. So I always had a standard uh, item on the agenda, I call it Covey moments, where a teacher would share something that went on in their classroom that really drove home one of the habits and how the kids were doing on that. So it gave, it, gave teachers a chance to talk about something we were really trying to implement and keep that in the forefront. But meetings are dull and deadly, but if you put uh, clear objectives, you have refreshments, and you have that social times, sharing birthdays and other life events with staff, it makes it uh, a lot more enjoyable and valuable to, to put all that together with a, yeah. with a really uh, clear agenda with yeah. in and so forth. Yeah, so what you and I are both describing is intentional leadership, right? It's everything is intentional from, from the agenda, to the snacks that you bring, to maybe whatever, uh, you know, if you do like a brain gym activity or just something because, you know, human beings, that's right. And I love what you said. Human beings, you know, need that social opportunity. They need that, that you know, feeling that, that, they're, that they're loved and they're welcomed and they have an opportunity. And then, and then that just breeds the culture of so are, you know, little humans, right, the ones that we lead on a daily basis are why we get up every day to lead these children. So what are we prepared to do 
um, you know, to, to get ourselves better so we can make them better. So excellent, excellent um, insight, bud. Thank you so much for sharing. I love it. I love it. So and we are so looking forward to uh, spending some time with you later this week. So, well, fantastic. Yeah, All right. Well, let's.